gotten to the promised land. So they're in Jerusalem. They're preparing to build the temple, yet the people still feel like exiles. And as David, as David interacts with the people, he leads them in this prayer. And this is what it says, starting halfway through verse 10. It says, Blessed are you, O Lord, the God of Israel, our Father, forever and ever. Yours, O Lord, is the greatness and the power and the glory and the victory and the majesty. For all that is in the heavens and in the earth is yours. Yours is the kingdom, O Lord. You are exalted as head above all, both riches and honor come from you, and you rule over all. In your hand are power and might, and in your hand it is to make great and to give strength to all. And now we thank you, our God, and praise your glorious name. But who am I? And what is my people that we should be able thus to offer willingly? For all things come from you, and of your own have we given you. For we are strangers before you and sojourners, as all our fathers were. Our days on earth are like a shadow. There is no abiding. As we think about some of our needs, I want to give just a few updates from some of the things that we've been mentioning. Uh, A group of churches has been helping provide uh, families in need with school lunches at pickup at at different churches in our community. And so they've done the first week or two of that, and now they're starting another couple weeks of providing these lunches. Here was the update that I got from one of the directors. So the lunch, out, the lunch handout is going extremely smoothly, thanks to the amazing support of this community who's willing to care for each other. Okay, he goes on to talk about that we are giving out over 200 lunches every single day. He talks about how we need volunteers to help, volunteers who are willing to, to donate, volunteers who are willing to help pass out. And so I think we're going to try to put a link on our Facebook in our comments right now. There's a new sign-up genius. If you can give or you can help in these next couple of weeks, you can take a look um, at that link. We also got an update from Community Cupboard, which is our local food pantry. And here's what they have told us. Many of our volunteers are retired. They're not comfortable coming out to help with our current crisis. Food demand from the cupboard is up about 40%. It goes on to say, we're going to stop shop, we're going to stop doing the shopping. So what happens is people come into the community cupboard and it's almost like a grocery store. And what they're telling us is that they're actually going to stop doing that for the safety of everyone that's involved. And they're going to start putting boxes together and then handing those boxes to those who come in with need. They tell us that they need more volunteers, a few hours to pack the boxes and they need those, that help on Wednesday and Saturday. Maybe you're comfortable doing that. Maybe you're not comfortable doing that. Uh, but that was the need that was given to us. We're going to put an email, hopefully in our Facebook comments, of the community cupboard. And you can email them if you have questions about how you can help. So really uh, tangible needs in our community with the school lunches and with the community cupboard. Um, and we can continue to be Christ's hand in those ways. Also, if you want to give online to our church so that we can continue to support our missionaries, so we can continue to support our ministries and what we're doing through this church, um, you can do that online as well. There, there should be a link. 
keep saying it should be on the screen. Is it on the screen? Yay, look at that. So you can do that online. You can save your offering if you'd like to. You can mail it to us. Another thing that we got really good feedback from last week was our COVID-19 Benevolence Fund. So this is a fund that's on that same page where you can give your weekly offering and tithe to, to Mount Calvary. There's a specific designated fund that is going specifically to families who have financial needs during this time. And so we've been able to give out grocery cards to those whose work has changed. And so we're going to continue to do that with that money and other needs as they come our way. And so if you can give and you want to give specifically to that fund, um, you can do that. So we want to pray for our needs, for our community needs and our world's needs. And to do that, I want to pray this prayer of King David in First Chronicles 29. Let's pray together. Blessed are you, O Lord, the God of Israel, our Father, forever and ever. Yours, O Lord, is the greatness and the power and the glory and the victory and the majesty. For all that is in the heavens and in the earth is yours. Yours is the kingdom, O Lord, and you are exalted as head above all. Both riches and honor come from you, and you rule over all. In your hand and power and might, and in your hand is to make great and to give strength to all. And now we thank you, our God, and praise your glorious name. But who are we? And what is my people that we should be able thus to offer willingly? For all things come from you, and of your own have we given you. For we are strangers before you and sojourners. As all our fathers were, our days on the earth are like a shadow. There is no abiding. Heavenly Father, this is our prayer. All things are yours. Everything we have is a gracious gift. And in this time of need... We give back to you because it's all yours. We lift up our community, the school families that are struggling in this moment because of financial needs. We pray for those that are going to the community cupboard with physical struggle, with hunger. God, we pray for our missionaries around the globe that are continuing their ministry even in difficult circumstances. God, we pray that through this time, that people would see exactly what King David prayed. Your greatness, your power, your glory, your victory, and your majesty. May we give because you've given us everything. It's in your name we pray. Amen. Well, good morning. I hope you're doing okay there at home. You're hanging in there another week. uh, You'll maybe want to know the Watsons are doing better. We put the Christmas decorations up, so that was positive. Um, I did find myself this week in a pretty low spot. I was watching, enjoying, cheering on competitive marble racing on ESPN. 
I really enjoy that, though. Like, there's something I just love watching these marbles go down these hills. I do recommend it. Um, but the Watsons are doing fine. Ashley's working at home, making phone calls, and so we're thankful for that. Um, but yeah, overall, we're okay. We do hope your family is doing well. And as always, as you have needs, as you're lonely, as you're discouraged, as you want someone to talk to or pray for you, if you have a physical need, reach out to us. We would love to to chat with you, to pray with you, to meet your needs. Um, Let me pray briefly here as we get into Exodus 17. Father, as we open up your word, we want to hear from you today. So help us, God. Help us that regardless of what we face, regardless of the stress or the anxiety or the discouragement or the happiness or whatever we're feeling here this morning, God, help us to hear from you. We need to hear from you. So God, we pray for encouragement by your spirit through your word. Challenge us, convict us, Move us that we can love you and follow you even in difficult circumstances. We pray these things in the name of your son, Jesus Christ. Amen. So we've been reading through Exodus the last um, week, and we looked at Exodus 16. And if you remember, we talked about how God, his, his provision is gracious, and it's abundant. And remember the phrase that was used in Exodus 16, his provision reigned from heaven. But yet the Israelites are still called to rely on God daily, to depend on him for every single need. And we talked about the principle of the umbrella, that if God went through all the work to rescue the Israelites, with the Red Sea and the plagues and the Passover and all these provisions, won't he also care for their physical needs as well? And so for us, that message was, if God has gone through all the work to take care of our greatest spiritual needs of forgiveness through the cross and reconciliation through sending of his son, Jesus Christ, won't he also take care of our physical and emotional needs today? And so for us in this time, as we looked at Exodus 16, the the message was, we turn our eyes to Christ. We turn our eyes to depend on Christ today, who we know and who we trust is going to provide for us. And then we get to Exodus 17. And it's really just an amazing section, an astounding section in Scripture. It almost feels like we're watching a rerun. It's the third part, in Exodus 16, it's the third part of back to back to back of stories of struggle in the wilderness, struggles in the desert. The third story in a row, Exodus 15, we we are told that the Israelites took a three-day journey in the desert. Three days in the desert, they get to a place called Marah. They're exhausted, they're thirsty, and they find the pool of water. They take a sip of the water, and what was wrong with it? It was bitter, 
undrinkable. So they took those three days, they get Tamara, they take a drink of the water, and it's bitter. They set out from there in Exodus 16. This is what we talked about last week. They find themselves in the wilderness of sin, which we talked about. They're thirsty. They're starving to death. And you get to verse 17, or you get to chapter 17, verse 1, and it's now time for them to leave sin, and they're going to move on to the next location. And 17.1 says this. All the congregation of the people of Israel moved on from the wilderness in stages. You see this coordinated exit out of sin, and they're headed towards another area called Rephidim. And it's coordinated. There are so many Israelites, they're so excited, they're anticipating getting out of this piece of wilderness to get to the next, that they have this coordinated exit out of sin. I picture it like a place that we used to vacation when I was a kid. We would go, one time we went to Michigan and there was this place in Michigan called the Sleeping Bear Plateau. And at this this state park, there was this very challenging dune, sand dune climb. And it would, if you followed the dune, if you made it up the dune, you would eventually get to Lake Michigan. Now, I remember doing this as a kid, a little kid, being so excited to get to the lake. And I remember starting this climb on this massive, sandy mountain. And as you're going up this hill, I mean, it is exhausting. The sun was out, the sand is deep, my legs were exhausted, and we go up and up and up the sand. And finally, we get to the top of the dune, and I remember being so excited to finally get to see the lake, because all you saw the whole time is going up this big, sandy hill. We got up to this sandy dune, and what I saw was completely depressing. Because instead of seeing the beautiful Lake Michigan, all I saw was more sand dunes. My parents, well, I'm I'm blaming my parents. They might be watching, but I blame my parents. I didn't know that this was an almost four-mile hike through multiple sand dunes that was going to take over four hours. And I remember sitting up on top of this dune being just exhausted. Do we turn around now? We spent all this time to get here, but I can't even see the lake. Do I turn around and go back because I'm already so tired? And this is where the Israelites were in Exodus 17. This is the third stage of wilderness. Back to back to back. Let's read about this experience on this third wave, starting in verse 1 of 17. It says, All the congregation of the people of Israel moved on from the wilderness of sin by stages. According to the commandment of the Lord, and, and they camped at Rephidim, but there was no water for the people to drink. Therefore, the people quarreled with Moses and said, give us water to drink. And Moses said to them, why do you quarrel with me? Why do you test the Lord? But the people, there, the people thirsted there for water, and the people grumbled against Moses and said, Why did you bring us up out of Egypt to kill us and our children and our livestock with thirst? Verse 4. So Moses cried to the Lord, What shall I do with this people? They are almost ready to stone me. And the Lord said to Moses, 
pass on before the people. Taking with you some of the elders of Israel, take in your hand the staff with which you struck the Nile and go. Behold, I will stand before you there on the rock at Horeb. And you shall strike the rock and the water shall come out of it and the people will drink. And Moses did so in the sight of the elders of Israel. And he called the name of the place Massa and Meribah because of the quarreling of the people of Israel. And because they tested the Lord saying, is the Lord among us or not? They get to this third section of the wilderness They're already exhausted. They're already discouraged. They get to Rephidim and there is no water to drink. And it was standard practice when getting to a new area to rename a place because of what you were experiencing and because of what you were feeling. And that's what the Israelites do at the end of this passage. What was their experience? What was their brutally honest question that kind of captured what they were feeling in this new location? Is the Lord among us or not? In other words, where is God? Like, where is He? We're exhausted, we're dying of thirst. Where is He? And for us this morning, this might be the question that you're asking. I mean, it may be a, a, the way that you're thinking about your circumstances. Where is God in light of this virus? In light of my job change, in light of my canceled plans, in light of being distant from the people that I love, where is God today? In light of all this. And for us, this is the question that we want to spend some time on today. So let's take a closer look at our text. Look back at verse um, 1. Verse 2, what we're going to see is that the people, the Israelites, are responding to the unfolding of their circumstances. Okay, they've seen it since they're now in this third stage of the wilderness, and they start to respond by what, with what they feel. Look at some of the strong words that are used to describe their response. Look at verse 2. They are quarreling with Moses. Give us water to drink. They're fighting. This isn't, though, a word that is used to just talk about an argument. Like maybe, maybe, hypothetically, our kids, kids, any kids, not my kids, of course, arguing over who is going to get the mail, arguing over who's going to get to pick the show that we're about to watch. This isn't that kind of arguing, little arguments. This is a much stronger word. This is the word that's used in the Old Testament to talk about a lawsuit, an accusation that is going to lead to a charge, a formal charge or a lawsuit. This is serious business. So when they're quarreling with Moses, they're accusing Moses of a crime. You have led us. You are responsible for our pending death. 
Look at verse, the second part of verse 2. Moses describes what they're doing. He says, you are testing God. You aren't just challenging me and my leadership. In, in what you're doing is by challenging my leadership is you are testing God. They are challenging God's plan. Essentially, what the Israelites are doing is saying, we're ready, Moses, to take over the unfolding of our exodus. Like you've been in charge and we appreciate that, but now we're going to challenge that you really know what's going on and we're going to take the reins. But what Moses is saying is, is you're not challenging me. You're not testing me. I'm not making this up as we go. I am following the will of God as revealed to me. He's saying you are testing, you are shaking your fist at God. And then in verse 3, the last word that's used to describe how the Israelites are responding to this situation is that they're grumbling. They're grumbling. They're complaining. I picture them mumbling words over their situation. Psalm 95 talks about this, this story here in Exodus 17. And the psalmist describes what the people are doing by saying as they quarrel As they test and they grumble, their hearts have been hardened. They are now at a point where they are done responding with God. I mean, they are unresponsive. They are dull. They don't believe in who he is and what he's doing. And with this grumbling, what's the question that they ask? Why? The why question, why are you doing this? And it's clear as you look at this scene with the Israelites that that they they are done. I mean, they are discouraged. That this wilderness isn't just a physical physical wilderness, but this is spiritual wilderness. They are exhausted and they are ready to turn their backs on God and Moses. They're confused. They're skeptical. And it goes back to the question that they asked in verse 7. Is God even here? Like, is God among us? Where is he? And again, this might be the question that you have in your heart today. But look at how God responds. Verse 6. Okay, this happens occasionally, where I will get on a verse, and I will get so excited, giddy, that's not probably not the right word, but happy, encouraged by what I'm reading, I could not get off this verse. I mean, it was so clearly God's encouraging me with this verse here, because it is God's response to the to the quarreling and the testing and the grumbling. And God comes in and he responds in verse 6 and he says, Behold, I will stand before you there on the rock at Horeb. You shall strike the rock and the water shall come out of it and the people will drink. Okay, let's just reflect and think about this verse for a few minutes. First, behold, he says. Behold, take this in, Israelites. Soak it in. 
Be ready for what you're about to hear. Remember this. See this. Let this lesson of truth that you are about to see in front of your eyes, let it become ingrained on your hearts and your minds. Behold it. Watch it. Receive it. I will stand before you on the rock. Whoa, whoa, wait a minute. Who is the I? Who is standing before them? Well, it's God himself who is responding to their responses, saying, I will stand before you. Now, what, wait a minute, though. Like, God doesn't stand before people. They're about to get to Sinai in a few chapters. And what does he tell them about the mountain that Moses goes to meet with him on? Don't touch the mountain. My presence will consume you. My glory will overtake you. Yet here in Exodus 17, he says, I will stand before you on this rock. My presence will be before you. Now, we don't know exactly what's happening here. How this actually works, God doesn't have a physical body, yet it's clear with what he says is, I am going to be before you on this rock. My presence will be there. But here's what's even more amazing. What is God doing? The the language here is God is standing before someone doing a little bit of research on what that means. This is the picture of a courtroom. This is the picture of when the jury has determined the verdict and they pass the verdict on to the judge and they look to the accused. What does the judge say to the accused before he reads the verdict? Stand up. Stand before me. I am going to read you the charge. I'm going to read you the results. This is the same language that's used here. A servant standing before his master. God uses the same language here. I will stand before you, under you. He says, gather the elders, gather the people, get everyone there, and I'm going to stand before you on this rock. And again, this just is an anomaly in Scripture. I mean, Psalm 4 talks about people, the wicked, standing before God. But here we have the opposite. Now, what does he say to, what does he tell Moses to do? I I love this part. I want you to strike the rock. Okay, this is one of those moments in Scripture that I call, you want me to do what? You want me to do what? I want you, Moses, to take the staff, okay? What did the staff represent up to this point in Exodus 17? The staff was the judgment of God. The staff represented God's powerful judgment on the Egyptians. He used the staff to turn the water into blood for the gnats and the frogs to cross through the Red Sea. The staff was the means by which these happened. And now God is telling Moses, I want you to take the stick of judgment, my judgment, and I want you to take that stick and I want you to hit the rock that my presence is on. 
take the judgment of God and hit the rock of God that my presence is on. And Moses just has to be thinking, oh no, this is not going to be good. Like this is not going to be pretty. What is about to happen to me? There's going to be fire. There's going to be plague. This is God's judgment stick. Like how is he going to judge us today? This is not going to be good. But what happens? None of the above. None of it. What happens? It just the suspense as the Israelites watch this would have been thick. What happens? He hits the stick with the judgment of God with the staff, and out of the rock comes flowing fresh water, not just a trickle, but a flowing source of water for the people. And like we said last week, water was life. Water was grace. Water was refreshing. And as we think about this text, I mean, that's the essence of our text this morning. And that is well and good, but we, as we think about this text in light of where we are today, Paul makes a really interesting connection in 1 Corinthians Verse chapter 10, verses 3 through 5. He refers back to this story. Now, this story is going to happen again, a similar story in the, in the book of Numbers, but a different circumstance. But what Paul is doing here in 1 Corinthians 10 is he says, let me refer back to that story and let me make a connection and an application for us here today. And it's there in verse 4. And he says, the rock was Christ. The rock was Christ. And so as we put all this together for us, I want to kind of think through this story in Exodus 17. But I want to do it now, not from the lens of Moses and the Israelites. But I want to think about it for us today, since Paul made this connection. Since Paul made this connection that the rock in the desert that Moses hit with the staff was Christ. The question for us is, what does it mean for us? What can we learn and what can we take away now that we can place ourselves into this story? So I want to look at three quick thoughts as we wrap up. First is this, since Christ is the rock, then we are in wilderness. Like the Israelites who spent desert after desert after desert in this thick, harsh wilderness, so are we. We live outside of the garden, outside of Eden, where things will be harsh. In Romans, Paul describes the world that we live in, and he describes it with strong words, that the world is in bondage, that the world is decaying, that the world is groaning in pain. And it's a reality for us today. If Christ is the rock in this story in Exodus, in this story for us today, then we too live in wilderness. Something has gone terribly wrong. Sin has come in and broken and devastated our world and we are forced to live in the effects of this brokenness. Secondly, since 
Christ is the, the rock. We will struggle like the Israelites did in the wilderness. All of us will struggle as makes sense as we forge through this life in the wilderness. The story of the Israelites is a life story, a personal story for us where we grumble and we question and we test, where we ask questions. Where are you, God? Why would you do this? But for us, as we kind of experience the wilderness of our world, it's almost like it is a crossroads for us where, where God is asking us, how will you respond to the harsh conditions? He talks about this in Deuteronomy 8. We're not going to have it on the screen, but, but God is explaining to them, he's explaining to them why the wilderness. And he says this to them. Chapter 8, verses 2 through 3, he says, You shall remember the whole way that the Lord your God has led you these 40 years in the wilderness, that he might humble you, testing you to know what was in your heart, whether you would keep his commandment or not. And he humbled you and he led you in, in hunger and he fed you with manna, which you did not know, nor did your fathers know, that he might make you know what man does not live by bread alone. But man lives by every word that comes from the mouth of the Lord. What is he saying? He's saying, I'm going to lead you in the wilderness. And there are good reasons for this. Suffering in your life can have a wonderful, positive effect. But what are you going to do in response to it? How are you going to choose when you get to that crossroad? Am I going to be like the Israelites or am I going to trust that God has something good that he's doing? We will struggle like the Israelites in the wilderness. How will we respond to the harshness of the world that we live in? And then lastly is this. Since Christ is the rock, we have an answer to our question. Since Christ is the rock, we have a, an answer to our question, where is God when we suffer? Because what was the answer for the Israelites? The Israelites for them was, he is at the rock. He is the provision at the rock. He is there and he is among you and he is with you. And he is about to take the judgment, the judgment stick for you and he's going to provide for you in the midst of your suffering he is there at the rock and for us it's the same answer god is here with us in the midst of our wilderness experience of our suffering and the story that captures this perfectly is the story of the cross there's a there's a book where Eli Wiesel talks about the Hitler death camps. Now, I'll, I'll be um, cautious here. I know kids will be watching, but it's a really um, interesting book as he's writing about his experience surviving these camps as a teenager. And in this book, Eli Wiesel talks about how he's responding to these atrocities that are before him. And in this book, he, what he does is he writes about 
He writes about God's nature as he sees his life unfold. And there was one especially riveting, moving scene in the book that I want to just read here briefly. They were at the gallows, okay, about to experience and witness something unspeakable. And here's how the book describes it. Here's how, here's how Ellie describes it in the book. He says, I heard a man as they're watching what is happening, as they're in lines watching. I heard a man behind me cry out, where is God? And as they stood there and they watched the suffering, I heard the voice again, where is God now? And as he said these things, I heard a voice rise within me to answer him. And this is what it said. He is here with us on these gallows. You see, our hope in the wilderness that we are experiencing today, our hope and our comfort is not a God in the sky that is merely speaking words of comfort. Our hope is in the word Jesus Christ, who became flesh, and he lived and he suffered among us. I mean, this is the difference between Jesus and every other religious figure. He came and he suffered with us. He understands our suffering. He understands our pain. He understands the injustice, the oppression, the abuse, He understands betrayal because he lived it in our midst. Evil is everywhere. Sadness and dysfunction is everywhere. But guess what? It was there at the cross where Jesus became the victim for us. He took on the staff of God's judgment for us in our midst, in our presence, that we might experience water. Water for the Israelites, for us, is the life and the freedom that's given to us through the Holy Spirit. God is not distant. He's not distant. He's not far off. He is here with us. And as we consider this as we wonder about where God is, we've got to hold on to the fact that God is here with us. Do we understand exactly what's happening to us? Absolutely not. No, we don't. But we trust and we hold on that God is still here, that he is still with us, that he cares for us, that his presence is here. And ultimately, the cross is a picture of his presence with us. As we face another week, okay, another week of just unknown, not knowing what is ahead of us, don't grow weary in doing good. Love in whatever way you can to those around you, the hurting, the vulnerable. Hang on. 
Not to yourself, not to someone else, not to an idea, not to the government, not even for a cure. Hang on to Christ. He is our firm foundation. He is our movable anchor. He is our solid rock. And we wait. We wait for the Lord who is coming to take this broken world and get us back into Eden, to get us back into what is right. He is coming, and so we wait. We wait for renewed strength like an eagle. We are holding on to that hope this week. And listen, church, where is God? Christ is here. He's here, he is with you, he was with you at the cross, and he is with you in this moment. You are not alone. Let's pray. Father, I pray that as we grumble, and as we question, and as we test, and we wonder about you in this season of challenge, I pray that you would impress upon our hearts the presence of your son Jesus Christ at the cross. That you are not a God who is far off, but that you are here with us in the gallows. That you came, you sent your son to be with us in the gallows, in the struggle. And I pray, God, that even though our circumstances are hard, that you would help us to hold on to your comforting presence. We are not alone. You are not a God who is far off. You are here, and may we find strength, may we find courage as we understand your presence with us today. It's in your name we pray, amen.